You don't have to say it out loud, but where do you need the most help in life? Just consider this for a moment. Where do you, where do you think you need the most help in life? Do you, do you need help parenting maybe a rebellious child? Do you need help with a chronic illness? Perhaps, perhaps you're here this morning and you need help in your marriage or maybe at your job. Or, or what, about, what about your relationships? Maybe your relationships with your parents or your in-laws. Or maybe you're with your kids. To put it another way, where are you experiencing the greatest difficulty? If I, if I were to give you a piece of paper, or take, for example, the back of that bulletin. On the back of the bulletin, if there was the question, where do you need the most help in your life, what would you write down? How would you answer that question? I think all of us would admit that we are in need. Amen? I think we all experience moments of need, seasons where we feel either overwhelmed or we feel helpless or we feel even perhaps desperate. Live long enough and all of us will feel and experience a season of need. And this was certainly the case for the original readers of the book of Hebrews. As we read through the book of Hebrews, even just a cursory reading, we discover that they too experienced great hardship. They suffered physically. They suffered emotionally. They had, as we see in the end of the book, they had relationship difficulties. In other words, they struggled. They had struggles just like you and me. And friend, whenever you experience hardships, whenever you find yourself in these, these seasons or these moments of need, you know what is arguably the most important question you can ask yourself? What is arguably the most important question you can ask yourself is this, and that is, who do I believe can actually help me? In our moments of need, I want to suggest that that is arguably the most important question to ask. Who is it that can actually help me? And you know why that is the most important question? Because that question, your answer to that question, it will direct your life. It will guide your path. We could say it this way. Who you believe or what you believe will help you it will chart the course of your life. If you would, please open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 4. This morning we're going to resume our study of the book of Hebrews. This morning we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 16 through, or 14 through 16. And, and here's what I want, I'd like you to do this morning, friend. This morning I'd like you to consider the bold claim 
that this text makes. And then I want you to ask yourself if you really believe it. And if you do, I want you to take a moment to consider if the course of your life reflects that belief. And if it doesn't, think with me on what would need to change to make that happen. So as we read this passage, I want you to consider the bold claim and ask yourself, do I really believe it? So if you haven't already, please turn with me to Hebrews 4. That's page 1002 in those Bibles that Basil just mentioned a moment ago. Uh, as you're turning there, let me give you the context. In the previous verses of Hebrews chapter 4, the author states what the rest of the Bible repeatedly affirms, and that is we all will give an account to God for our life. Each and every one of us. As chapter 4 verse 13 so vividly states, we all are naked and exposed before God. This is to say no aspect of our life is hidden from our triune God's sight. Consider this, friend. He knows every thought you've had, every action you've committed, every intention of your heart. Nothing is hidden from the sight of our God, and we will give an account to him. Which you know what this means, if we just take a moment to consider the, the imagery that's used here, if we are all laid bare and exposed before God, warts and all, sins and all, if we are naked and exposed before God, you know what that means? It means we need clothes. But not just any clothes, we need righteous robes, the righteous robe of a high priest. And friend, that's precisely what God gives sinners through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've been looking at in the book of Hebrews, as our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, died on the cross to absorb the full wrath of God we are owed due to our sin. In our place, right, as we sing, in our place condemned he stood. Then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, proving himself to be the Son of God. As our high priest, Jesus saves all who trusts in him. And that's good news, amen? But that's not all Jesus does. Consider now what we read here in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Here now the word of the Lord. The author writes this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Why? Why should we do this? 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. In 2014, Dorothy Fletcher suffered a heart attack while on an air, airplane flight from Manchester to Florida. In the middle of the flight, she suffered a heart attack. Immediately, the flight attendant asked if there were any medical professionals on the plane. And to everyone's surprise, 15 passengers promptly rose from their seats to help the 57-year-old woman. And you know who those 57 passengers, I'm sorry, who those 15 passengers were? They were cardiologists on their way to a cardiology conference. And not just any cardiologists. These were the leading experts in that field. So you know what happened next? Within minutes, they administered intravenous drips and skillfully utilized the onboard medical kit to manage the life-threatening episode. The flight was then rerouted to North Carolina where Mrs. Fletcher received further treatment in the intensive care unit and is today doing fine. Here was a woman in great need. And providentially, God provided her with a plane full of what? Cardiologists. Yet faith as moving and heartwarming as that story might be, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, tells a far greater story. For better than a cardiologist, God has given us a great high priest who can help us in our time, in our moments of need, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if, if we were to summarize these three verses, we could summarize them this way, and that's this. As your high priest, Jesus can help you in your time of need. This, I want to suggest, is the main point of these three verses, and what a great point it is, amen? As your high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, he can help you in whatever moment of need you might have. Friend, we all need help. We all experience hardships. We all suffer. The question is, where will we turn to? Who will we turn to in our time of need? Let me ask you, where will you turn when suffering chronic pain? Where will you turn when dealing with a difficult relative? Where will you turn when parenting a rebellious child? Who do you believe can give you help in the moment? This passage is inviting us to turn to Jesus. So listen to this. So that you might receive grace to help you in your time of need. Who wouldn't want to do that? Why would we turn anywhere else? 
And again, my invitation to you this morning is to ask yourself, do I really believe this? Do I believe Jesus can provide me with what he promises in this verse? That when I wake up and again, that chronic illness is weighing me down, do I believe Jesus can give me the grace needed in that moment? When I'm helping an elderly parent who is difficult, do I believe that God can give me the grace I need in that moment? When I'm caring for a sick child, when I'm dealing with a difficult boss, do I, do I even turn to Jesus? Our great high priest, and he's going to develop what that means here in a moment, to help me in that moment. As several commentators have correctly observed, this passage is grammatically structured around two imperatives, which are both related to Jesus being our great high priest. These imperatives are the actions that the author exhorts us to make in light of Jesus being our high priest who can help us in our time of need. And so, it's pretty easy. If the, if the passage is built around this, these imperatives, the outline of the sermon will be as well. So notice the first imperative is given there in verse 14, and that is, in light of Jesus being the high priest who can help us in our time of need, therefore the author exhorts us to number one, Hold fast to the faith. Keep believing in Jesus. Keep running to him. Strengthen your faith. Notice what he says there in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest, which we do, who has passed through the heavens, referring to Jesus' ascension. He died, he rose from the dead, he went back up into the heaven, back into the presence of God. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Who can tell me what February 11th is? What's February 11th? Who said it? Super Bowl Sunday, yeah. I thought more of you would know this, but... February 11th is, is the Super Bowl, which Basil is praying that the Cowboys will be in. Yes. Hey, 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 God rose Jesus from the dead... He might pull off a miracle here. So February 11th is Super Bowl Sunday. Do you happen to know what January 12th is? It's just a few days ago. You know what January 12th is? National Quitters Day. This is a real thing. Research shows that most people give up on their New Year's resolutions by the second Friday of January. They quit. The commitment they've made to do something new in the new year, they quit by the second Friday of the year. Faith, please hear me. While many people have given up on their new year commitments this past Friday, the author of Hebrews does not want us to give up on our faith in Jesus Christ. Indeed, he calls us to hold fast our confession. In particular, we are told to hold fast to the truth that Jesus rose from the dead after being crucified for our sins. He rose from the dead and then ascended back into heaven. This is what the author is getting at when he writes that Jesus passed through the heavens. 
Jesus is unlike any mere human high priest. He, he died, he rose again, and then he entered back into the presence of God the Father. Furthermore, notice what, what the author says here. Jesus is the very Son of God. And the author of Hebrews has been hammering this home, has he not? The one who suffered and died on the cross to forgive us of our sins and then rise from the dead and pass back through the heavens, back into God's presence, is greater than God's servant Moses or any angel. Our high priest is the very Son of God. And faith, the reality is we all are holding fast to something. I'll tell you this, especially in moments of need, especially in seasons of difficulty, there is something we are grasping onto. And this passage is calling us to place our tightest squeeze, our tightest grip on the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, the other day, I was talking to an acquaintance at the gym about what separates biblical Christianity from every other religion. And during our conversation, I was able to share with him that what Christians hold firmly to is that we are saved not by our own righteousness, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And friend, I want to suggest to you that one of the many reasons why Christians struggle in various ways is because they don't have a firm grasp on this truth. They're not holding it tightly. For example, whereas the Bible teaches that everyone is accountable to God for their life, sinful men, sinful man suppresses this truth. And you know why sinful man suppresses this truth? It's because they cannot bear to confront their own guilt. So they suppress it. All of us know that we're, we're guilty and in need of atonement. Romans 1 makes this abundantly clear. If you're here this morning, you, every person we talk to, every person we interact with, the fellow I was talking to at the gym, we, we know we're accountable to God we feel the burden and the guilt of our sin. We know we need atonement. Yet what does sinful man do? They attempt to absolve man of his guilt apart from atonement. Our world is in desperate search of how can I get free from this need to be atoned by God? How can I get rid of this guilt? And you know what they often do? is they disparage God and make oneself a permanent victim. You see, if I'm a victim simply of my circumstance, if I'm not accountable to a God for my actions, for my own choices, if I'm not accountable and I'm just a victim, then I'm also afforded rights. I'm absolved of responsibility, I'm afforded rights. And what I want to suggest to you, friend, is we see this line of thinking everywhere, even in Christian publishing, even in Christians' hearts. Yet Christian, we hold fast to a greater confession. Instead of denying our accountability to God, we own it. Why? Why do we own it? Because although we see we have fallen short, 
We believe that God has made provision for our sin through his one and only son, Jesus Christ, our great high priest who died who will forgive us. Amen? We no longer have to bear the guilt for our sin because Jesus died to forgive us of that. Amen? What great news. Um, Jay Adams, in one of his books, he was uh, interacting with a clinical psychologist who was treating people of all sorts of mental disorders who are just tortured in life. This guy was not a Christian, the clinical psychologist. And he said to Jay Adams, if I could tell these people they were forgiven, 80% of them would leave this mental institution. They're wrestling with the guilt they feel. And instead of trying to ignore the need for atonement, the Bible says Jesus has provided atonement for you. But not only that, our high priest also helps us in our time of need. I mean, how great is that? So now instead of demanding rights, we lay down our rights and count others as more important than ourselves. Friend, let us continue to hold fast to the good news of Christ. But then second, draw near to Jesus. Look at verses 14 or 15 and 16 again. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, when was the last time uh, you experienced poor customer service? When we were back in California last month, uh, my son Luke, his, his glasses broke. It wasn't his fault. Well, it wasn't anyone's fault. The, the glasses just broke. But thankfully, while we were in California, we found a repair place there in Carlsbad. However, our experience going to the eyeglass repair shop was bizarre to say the least. Here we is. We came in in need, hoping this repair guy could help. Yet despite our best and kind efforts, for whatever reason, the repair guy was indignant towards us. And neither myself, nor Luke, nor the three other customers who were in the store understood why. Needless to say, the repair guy's mistreatment of us, it really wasn't what we were expecting. We, we looked on the website, we saw, we expected to go in, hey, we're out of town, and son's glass broke, man, we're hoping you can help us, and we were not treated as we thought. Faith, this passage is inviting us to turn to Jesus in our time of need. So what can you expect when you turn to Jesus in your time of need? Notice three glorious comforts. First, the author makes it clear, unlike Luke and I's experience at the repair shop, you know what you can expect when you turn to Jesus? You can expect sympathy. Notice how clearly he says this there in verse 14 or 15, in a double negative. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Now, several commentators have pointed out the word here for sympathy is not limited to compassion and empathy, but it also denotes Jesus' ability to help those who are afflicted. And notice, Jesus was one who was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, at first, we may wrongly think that being sinless would make Jesus unsympathetic and distant from us, since we all have sinned in many ways and at many times. We, we might think that perhaps a fellow sinner could relate more to my failures. But friend, this is not so. As the great preacher Charles Spurgeon correctly observed, I love this quote, he says, Do not imagine that if the Lord Jesus had sinned, he would have been any more tender toward you. For sin is always a hardening nature. He then goes on. If the Christ of God could have sinned, he would have lost the perfection of his sympathetic nature. It needs perfectness of heart to lay self all aside and to be touched with the feeling of the infirmities of others. Others may object that if Jesus never sinned, he must not have been tempted to the degree that we are tempted. But again, as many have pointed out, that's not so. The one who resists to the very end knows the power of temptation in a greater capacity than the one who yields so quickly. And friend, what the Bible makes clear, especially in Hebrews 2 and here in Hebrews 4, is that Jesus knew every type of temptation, every type. He knew what it was like to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be tired. He knew the horrible agony, please hear me, of physical abuse, which he endured in his trial and crucifixion. He knew what it was like to be mocked, distrusted, maligned, and betrayed by his friends. Indeed, from the start of Jesus' ministry to the very end, Satan leveled all of his evil power and strategies to try to get Jesus to sin. But did he? No. As the author of Hebrews and the rest of Scripture make abundantly clear, Jesus never sinned. But let's but consider this. Jesus was tested not only by external circumstances, but also the internal weakness of humanity. Yet he did not have any heart desire to sin in response. Uh, many years ago, C.S. Lewis imagined someone objecting here. If Jesus never sinned, then he doesn't know what temptation is like. And the argument is that he lived a sheltered life and is out of touch with how strong temptation can be. But Lewis is really helpful here. He writes this. He says, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows the, to the full what temptation means. And this great high priest who endured temptation when we have not, he offers you his help. He says, draw near to me so that I, the one who have 
resisted all temptations can help you in your moment of need to do the same. Because as a Savior, Jesus says, I'm, I know what temptation is like, and I can help you. What good news. Amen? What a great and kind thing God has given us in Jesus Christ, a Savior who can sympathize with us. So that's what, you, number one, you can expect. But number two, you can also expect mercy. Because look at what he says there in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, isn't it interesting? Why can the author of Hebrews call it a throne of grace? Why can he say that? He can only say that because of the work of Christ, amen? We can only approach God through the person and work of Jesus Christ because if it weren't for the person and work of Christ, this wouldn't be a throne of grace. It would be a throne of judgment. And notice, from this throne of grace, we receive mercy. Now, I take this to mean mercy, God's tenderness in forgiving our sin. And again, I just want to press in here Whereas the world calls us to disparage God and paint ourselves as victims in order to suppress the guilt we feel, this passage instead invites us to own our sin to receive his mercy. This is, I mean, this is the greatest news in the solar system. Are we accountable to God? Yes. Do we sin? Does our sin urge judgment? Again, yes. But but in Christ, friend, we can receive forgiveness of sins so our consciences can be clear and we can be free from the burden of guilt. Amen? What good news. Christian, what sins have you committed in your times of need? How have you fallen short in your desperate moments? Giving way to sinful fear, anxiety, being angry in your responses towards others. How have you sinned in your moments of needs? Jesus forgives you when you come to him. What First John 8, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to do what? To forgive us of our sins. Don't dismiss your sin. Don't blame shift. Own it and receive his abundant mercy and forgiveness. But then third, this is again under drawing near to God. You can expect grace to help in time of need. For notice, and this is, it's all important, but I really hope you take this away from this morning. Notice this passage clearly tells us what kind of help Jesus gives us. And that is he gives us grace. You see, you know what our greatest need is in each situation? Especially those desperate moments, especially when you're, you're caring for a sick child or an elderly parent or difficulty at your job or difficulty in your marriage. You know what your greatest need is? You know what your greatest need is when you're suffering pain with your chronic illness? You know what your greatest need is when your spouse continually disappoints you? 
You know what your greatest need is? When your siblings treat you unfairly. You know what your greatest need is when caring for that difficult or elderly parent? Your greatest need, Christian, please hear me, is not to sin, but instead honor Jesus. That's your greatest need. God stands above it all. He is good. He does good. We're to give thanks in all circumstances. He's allowed this hard moment. He's provided this moment of need. And what is my need in the moment? To not sin, but to honor Jesus. And you know what this passage is teaching? Jesus stands ready to help you do just that. When you're in the hospital, when you're at home, when you're at your job, he stands ready to give you grace in that very moment to please him. So here's my question. What would it look like if you really believed this? If I really believed this? Well, I'll tell you one thing. You know what would change? Your prayer life would change. Instead of me praying, God, get rid of this difficult person in my life, or God, get rid of this difficult circumstance in my life, I instead would pray, God, I want, I'm drawing near to you right now. Give me the grace to honor and to please you in the midst of this. God, give me grace to honor you when my body is falling apart and I'm suffering in pain. God, give me grace to honor you when I'm interacting with difficult family members. God, give me grace to honor you as I serve my family. And what? And you know what? God promises to give us the grace we need in the very moment. Indeed, this passage invites us to boldly go before the throne of grace and to ask for that help. I love that phrase, to, to boldly approach the throne of grace. I can go with confidence, saying, God, I need you, and I'm asking, and to trust that he will provide. Faith, I don't know what Monday holds for you or me. I, I hope another appliance doesn't break in my home, but, but if it does... He is good, he does good, and I'm going to pray that even now he'd remind me to turn to him, to, to ask for grace so that I could honor him in my moment of need. Friend, as you go throughout this week, know that you are not alone. You are always under the watchful, loving eye of our great high priest. May we turn to him in our times of need, amen? Let's pray.